Hello, and welcome to You Haven't Seen, a podcast about movies we can't believe someone hasn't seen. I'm Rob. And I'm Amy. On this podcast, we make the other person watch a movie that we can't believe that person hasn't seen. It started as an exercise in shock, but really it's about the differing ways in which we each approach movies. Pretty much. Will we agree that it is an essential movie, or will we wish we still hadn't seen it? Before we get to this week's selections, let's go over uh, second thoughts on last week's movies. Now we've had a little time to process and look through responses we got in, which uh, we got to see how we get those, because <laughs> right now we're recording these in advance. Amy, has your opinion changed about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Um, I It's still not one that I would necessarily recommend to anybody or go looking for, but I, I do <laughs> see your point that it would be fun... You know, if you had a themed party, just kind of have it playing in the background, whatever. Um, It definitely is a picture of an era. Um, And then in the time since I've watched it, I actually listened to um, another podcast about the Manson murders. Mm. And that listening to that and seeing that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was maybe a end point to an era and um, almost acting as a warning, I suppose, to people who watched it because the Manson murders were horrific and shocking and sort of out of nowhere for people um, and definitely were in that environment that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is set in. So I think observing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls as a, like I said, a... A cultural snapshot. Yes, thank you. Sure. Um, a snapshot of that time and, and perhaps the behaviors that certainly not led to people getting killed by the Manson family, but just the the chaos of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think you could see people responding. And I mean, and we did have a cultural tightening of mores, I would say, in the 80s, perhaps in response to hmm. some of the behaviors in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, like 70s. That. I feel like saying it's, I mean, there'd be a pretty long delay response if it was a response to the 60s. That's true. But, I mean, but Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was the set, was 1970, wasn't it? Well, 1970, but that's yeah, essentially the swan song in the 70s then. Or the 60s, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the 70s, I think, I think the response to the 80s, there is that tightening of it. But, and I mean, we're talking about things when we were babies, but it seems like the kind of really sincere idealism of that mid to late 60s turned into a commercialized version of that through disco and all the rest. And it almost feels like it was a response to that. I mean, it was pretty hard to be sincerely angry about hippies, annoyed by them. But disco and the, you know, music seemed to branch off in two directions of disco and being as plastic and artificial as possible and then into punk rock and as earthy and grounded and angry as possible I don't know this is getting a whole other thing but <laughs> no but I I think cultural snapshot is a good way to put it yeah. and and yeah. I and I think we we saw it again later at the end of the 70s with Saturday Night Fever um, and and I think those can act as like you know warnings to parents maybe that's not mm. how they're intended that's interesting but that's sometimes how they end up like don't let your kids be this way um, Don't let your kid be like John Travolta. I have said this to my children <laughs> many times. Not because of Saturday Night Fever, but because he's a Scientologist. Well, right out of the gate, I just lost Tom Cruise as a listener. No, he's reconsidering his position. On what? Him. Is this true? Yep. That cannot be true. That's what I read. Because he's not allowed to see his daughter. He hasn't seen her since the divorce. I The... the trailer for the new Mission Impossible movie just came out. Yeah, I haven't watched it. He's running along buildings, leaping across them, hanging off the side of a helicopter. He's in his mid-50s now. Yeah. Which leads me to wonder, maybe Scientology works? Because <laughs> he is amazing. And rich. He's doing incredible things. And seems pretty physically. happy every time you see him. The, the, those giant horse teeth on full display. <laughs> Has your opinion changed on Pitch Perfect? Not in t- Not much. I am less inclined to condemn it outright. It's a movie I would happily recommend to a 13-year-old. I think they'll really enjoy it. I think they'll really like it. I don't think they'll mind the huge logical gaps in it and the storytelling flaws because they're not going to pay a lot of attention while on their phones anyway. 
So, you know, they'll look up for the funny songs. Or not funny songs, the the cutely red... You know what? Oh, this just occurs to me. You know what it reminds me of? Okay, whenever you have a movie where they take pop songs and cover them for the purpose of the movie, like you have a musical that's kind of non-musical because they're not songs that are original to the story and conveying something. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're just like pop covers. Yeah. I hate that, first of all. I think it's just about the worst. Name a movie that does it. It's a movie I hate. <laughs> Moulin Rouge. That every copy of that movie should be burnt. I've tried to watch that movie three times, and I can never do it. It's just I awful. get right into Nicole Kidman can-canning to a Nirvana song. Oh. And, and the 15-year-old in me just rages, and I, and I, and I rage punch the DVD to make the movie stop. If it wasn't already enough, that would have killed Kurt Cobain. <laughs> That's terrible. Like, he would have died again. Yeah. He would turn in his grave. Um, it's all like those kids' bops. Yeah. Compilations, which I, I've only heard, like, I've seen the commercials. I've never actually listened to one, but I've seen the commercials, and I think that was enough to get the idea <laughs> of little kids covering grown-up songs to make them a little more palatable, I guess? Yeah. I and feel without like is, curse words. Right. And with little kid voices in there. I feel like Pitch Perfect is very much that for pop music, which is already pretty saccharine stuff, of when Anna Kendrick busts out the rap. <laughs> Holy shit. If, I, if there's something I don't need in my life, it's little, tiny, white, bird-faced Anna Kendrick rapping in an empty swimming pool. Singing No Diggity. Oh, my... Oh! <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, but... And this... Uh, this points to some bigger issues with how you approach my choices. I'm excited. Um, so, but men have made whole careers off of doing that similar thing. Like, um, the... I mean, they're niche careers to be like Dick Cheese. I don't know where this is going, but that, I'm intrigued. Dick Cheese is the artist who does um, like lounge versions of songs, and he and they get played in movies, and he tours, and he makes a ton of money. Yeah, there's been a handful of groups that do th- a that, lounge but... version of um, sipping on gin and juice, which is amazing. And then also more recently, Chet Faker has started doing. Actually, I think No Diggity. Um, <laughs> it is No Diggity, and it's like super uh-huh. soulful. And then, and then you hear that, and you and there's other songs. And then um, even Sturgill Simpson. Simpson. Sure, all these names are just ludicrous. Oh, well, you would like Sturgill Simpson. I don't like his name. You guys have similar follicular tendencies. Your hair. We're saying our hair is similar, <laughs> and your face. Clearly, hair. we have things in common. <laughs> No, Ian Sterling, is that his name? Sturgill Simpson. Sturgill? It's a fucking bullshit name. He's a country singer, but uh-huh. yeah, kind of Chris Stapleton-y country singer. Okay. And he, Who I just learned about the other day for the first time. Yeah. I think it's important to distinguish because like, I think Chris Stapleton's actually pretty good and I don't really like country music and I don't think he's... Yeah, anyway. I think he's a moderately not terrible country singer and that's about it. With a guitar player who plays pretty heavy, and I like that. Yeah, just you know, so, get off the fence and play rock. Well, yeah, that was a question that we had. Um, is this country? If, but well, let's get back to. I can't just, believe I'm going to say this phrase out loud. Dick Cheese. Which and this Sturgill goes from being Simpson, a PG-13 to R-rated podcast in, in one second. With in that. Chet Faker, I'm just saying. There's men who have have done the exact same thing. Made some taken pop songs or rap songs and made them essentially appropriated them and sure. then built careers off of that. And that is what Sergio Simpson is doing. He he's on a national tour right now, based on the popularity of a, of his cover of In Bloom, which is a Nirvana song, and not. You know, not your typical country fair. There's a couple important distinctions. Not knowing about that particular guy, but as far as the kind of wave of yeah. white bread covers of more interesting music. By men. Well, and your distinction of saying it's by men, I don't see that as a purely male trend that was around. Uh, Nouvelle Vogue. Nouvelle Vague. Nouvelle Vague. That was a, a female-fronted version of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I'm willing to say that how can I put this? Okay, those things definitely exist. To say that those are culturally perceived as better than what I'm talking about, I don't think it's true. I think those are also garbage. <laughs> I don't think that gender defines whether or not it has quality. 
I think that anytime you take the teeth of something that's interesting and rip those out to make it more palatable to suburb, middle-aged people who feel safe playing it in their minivan with their children, I am against that on the whole. I know there are kids' versions of Ramon songs. My children hear the real Ramon songs. Which are already sort of kids' music. Yeah, they're pretty kid-friendly. But, you know, well, in a way, uh, they're, they're kid-fun, even if the lyrics aren't exactly yeah. kid-friendly. So, I, you know, I stand by my criticism. I don't think it's a, a gendered criticism at all. Okay. I Just think making it's sure, because I feel like that's going to be my shtick here. Your stick is gender, representing all women, and me. No, no, not representing all women. Just making sure that you're paying attention to the fact that you can unwittingly sure. see the world only through your blue tinted glasses sometimes. Well, one, I have blue eyes. That's just how my eyes are. It's not my glasses. Two, I am a boy. So I can't help but see things as a boy because I am one. I know, but sometimes we have to just be aware of that and and right. and be open to what life can bring us when we change our lenses. As long as it brings me movies better than Pitch Perfect, I'll be good with it. <laughs> okay. That's fine with me. All right, so there you go. That's our second thoughts. <laughs> Let's get to this week. Amy, what two movies did we watch this week? I chose... De- we started with me, right? Yeah, I chose Devil Wears Prada. You did, yes. You chose The Devil Wears Prada. And then you matched that up with The Exorcist. I figured we'd just stick with the theme of The Devil. Yeah, because The Devil! Ow! That's my Lisa Kudrow impression. Uh, Wait, let's hear it again. The Devil! The it's, whales! Wait, is Lisa Kudrow in this room right now? <laughs> okay. Uncanny. So, yes, the theme was um, loose, and it was just The Devil. Which is um, great. Yeah. And I think we're starting with me and The Exorcist. Well, we are starting with The Choice of The Exorcist. This week, we're starting up our new feature, which is <laughs> whoever was subjected to the movie must summarize the movie. And we're going to add challenge to it. The challenge this week is, can you summarize The Exorcist in a haiku? <laughs> Amy, please explain The Exorcist in 17 syllables. Here we go. Little girl possessed. No one has the right answer. Two priests save her soul. That was remarkably even keeled and accurate. <laughs> well, it's 17 syllables, so. I am very impressed. That was pretty good. I tried to find a way to put barf in there, but it didn't work. It's always room for barf. That's one thing I've learned. <laughs> well, just, you know, not, well, not in her, Reagan's tummy, that's for sure. It had to come tummy. out. Stop it. In her tum tum. Okay. So, what else do we need to know about this? Set this up. Okay, The Exorcist came out in 1973, and the director was William Friedkin, um, and it had an R rating. And there, um, so I, you lent the DVD to me, and you gave me a box that had, I think, two versions. It had the original, and it had the director's cut. That's right. And then I thought I lost it, and so <laughs> before I found it, um, I just searched for Exorcist on HBO, and it was on HBO, but that was just the first cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original. So I did a little bit of reading afterwards about what I missed. And um, I guess the main thing is the crab walking, the sort of famous the spider walking scene, spider yeah. walking scene yeah. um, which they had filmed originally. And then he cut it out because it was too scary. And it does seem that um, that would have changed the rating of the movie had they left it in. Um, uh, that's I think that's what I read. Yeah. So... Um, I was pretty okay with not seeing that because I've, okay. I've seen it before. Um, you had seen it before. I was thinking you had not. The spider walking. Oh, the spider walking. The spider not, walking, not, not the, the movie. Film. No, no, no. Okay. But I've seen the spider walking before. Um, and our main cast is uh, Chris McNeil, who is a successful and wealthy actress um, who's in Georgetown filming a movie. And she has a daughter named Reagan, played by Linda Blair. And then there's various priests that come into their life. One who's a friend and one who tries to help out later. Uh, she has a um, house... No. <laughs> I was going to say that guy. House girl. Um, wow. It's actually in the antebellum south suddenly? <laughs> yeah. She has a personal assistant sure. uh, named Sharon who <laughs> kind of lives with okay. them at times. Uh-oh. So, yeah. 
Um, so some odd details here. Go yeah. On. So the so that I kind of hinted at the synopsis. Um, the we have Reagan and she starts exhibiting very strange behavior. Um, sort of unexplainable stuff. The good first two thirds of the whole movie are her mom, Chris, taking her to various doctors and psychologists and um, a whole lot of doctors talking out their ass about brain lesions and... Brain lesions. There's so many of them. (laughs) Brain lesions Mm -hmm. caused from scar tissue and I don't know. Um, It was... I'm going to get to it. What? I feel like the haiku took us through a lot of this. We're really, really... Oh, okay. Sorry. a lot of detail here. You told me I was supposed to summarize better this time. Um... (laughs) Okay, and then the priest come and save her soul. <laughs> Skip to the end. <laughs> and there's barf and piss and... Oh, there is piss. Murder. There's murder, which is curious, but only because it's off screen. Murder. Murder. That didn't work. Um, Was okay. that your Lisa Kudrow impression? Yeah, yeah, but she never said that, so... It was it's a, really it's a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, this is not out of nowhere. Okay. Okay. So that's information. (laughs) I didn't mean to make you just finish. I just thought getting caught up with the name of her. No, it's fine. I'm used to you cutting me off. That's what this is. Um, That's what I'm into. Okay. So do uh, you want my response? Do you want to say more about my synopsis? (laughs) (laughs) Please. First, here's what I want to know. How did you feel while watching this movie? Pained. It hurt in my stomach to watch it. Um, I don't. I stopped watching horror and like real scary movies um, well over 10, 12 years ago. And I just don't because, it, and it plays into my general philosophy about movie watching, mm-hmm. which is I, no matter how good something is, I don't feel like you s- should subject yourself to something that you don't enjoy even if it's good, right? Like, so I've been trying to eat mushrooms my whole life because I understand that they are nutritionally just packed and good for you. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. I can't eat mushrooms. Can't stand them. So I'm not going to force myself to eat mushrooms or zucchini just because they're good for me because I don't enjoy them. Sure. So I don't watch sad movies and I don't watch scary movies. And I Okay, so wait. Are we distinguishing... Uh, scary and sad. So we're saying things that make you uncomfortable. No, I'm okay with being uncomfortable. Um, What's the distinction here? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's when I win. End of podcast. The whole series is now over. I mean, I'm okay with being uncomfortable if, if, if it's, okay, so if it's genuinely sad. I don't like, when I taught English and I used to talk about, um, manipulation and tone and the tone that an author or storyteller creates. The example that I always gave um, was Titanic, the movie Titanic, and how I will forever be angry at that movie because I didn't feel like it was actually sad. Like, if you were to go back and watch Mm. that movie and remove the soundtrack, sure, then it's not that sad. But you put a damn Irish flute in there and it's... Everybody's weeping all over the place. But that's being emotionally manipulative and yes. not being honestly sad. Correct. And and I don't want to go, I'm not going to see a Nicholas Sparks movie. I didn't go see the movie about the firefighters in Montana this summer. Like, anything that they want me to wave a flag and cry my eyes out, I'm not going to go watch that because it's trying to manipulate me to feel sad. And but then... isn't film inherently manipulative? Comedies are equally manipulative. They're trying to artificially inject joy and laughter into you. But I enjoy that. So it is about your level of discomfort and being uncomfortable. I'm okay being uncomfortable if it's if it's I'm gonna learn a lesson from it or or my life like Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, that movie's great. It's amazing. And and it takes you on such a like the pendulum swings so far because there's these moments of beauty and joy that brought tears to my eyes with a feeling I didn't even know what it was but it just made me feel so good and then there's moments of this abject poverty that are so upsetting and yeah. the floodwaters coming and and 
that's somebody's story. If I'm going to be sad, it's because I'm making a human connection to somebody, to okay. a character. So then bringing it back to The Exorcist then. Yes. What made you... It's not a movie that does the jump scare. Bleh, now you're scared. Yeah. It doesn't do as I'm sorry, as how, what's, it, what's a jump scare again? Bleh, you're scared. Okay, cool. It's, a, it's when a tiny... East Coast man jumps out and goes, with a, cigar, with a cigar, like, whoa. Better because of, of the water. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Is that, that's how they talk, right? Oh, stop talking. Isn't that what every phrase is? Keep going. We have better pizza because of the water. Keep going. Um, it is good water in New York, by the way. Of course you then say that. <laughs> Criticize me for it and then go, but really the water is different. Um, despite its reputation as a shocking film and a horrific film and all the rest, which it is. Yeah. It is not a gore hound film. No. It's not people getting vivisected and heads getting lopped off and all the rest. The only murder in the movie happens off screen. Well, there's two murders. No. Burke. Uh Uh-huh. Off screen. Hey, oops. Spoilers. I mean, it's over. It's 40 years old, so. Yeah, there's going to be spoilers for both of these movies, one of which will be Less spoiler possible because, yeah. well, we'll get into that. Okay, um, so it's not a gore hound kind of movie. No, so Burke dies, Bert off, dies screen. off screen uh-huh. and then the priest at the end. He's not murdered though, he kills himself. Oh, okay. So there's only one murder in the movie and it happens off screen. In many ways, it's not all that violent a film. It's emotionally turbulent and it's incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. So you've said your discomfort, it is worth it if you have a connection to the characters. Well, and I did. I would argue you were so uncomfortable doing this movie because it's so easy to connect with the characters. No, absolutely. I, I, we got off track a little bit by distinguishing between sad and scary and all of that. But um, I was uncomfortable watching it, and I think it's a big part of it is because I know what the movie's about, so I knew mm. what was coming. You know, some of the some of the greatest, or mo- not greatest, but like most effective scary movies um, are the ones that surprise you. And I knew it was coming with this, so I was tense through the whole thing. Mm. Um, Because it's so famous. I knew her head was going to turn around. I knew there was barf. I knew there was the, you know, Reagan slamming her crotch with a crucifix and all of that. Yeah. Um, Which is a scene that is still... Horrifying. Absolutely shocking. Four years later. It is appalling. Yeah. So I knew all that was coming, so, so I was sort of stressed out about that. And then for me... A big part of why I don't watch um, stuff that's real scary or gory, like I can take silly gore, and that's a conversation for another day. But but the stuff that is like like it could happen to me, or surgeries, or watching syringes, that the scene in the hospital when mm-hmm. they're giving her yep. the MRI, which they strangely have to stick a wire in her neck to insert the dye into her brain when you could just do it with an IV. Um, that scene was so, I responded so viscerally to that, that it put a knot in my stomach. And I think when you add that to, I was already tense cause I knew it was coming and because I wanted the little girl to be better. Like it is stressful and I did connect with her. It's all of those things. Well, that would go to prove the point of the power of this film and it, I haven't said it's not, I haven't said it's not powerful. Yeah. So it hurt me to watch it. Okay. Like while all it. every sphincter muscle in my body was wow. tight was tightened. The sure. one in my forehead. The Do one. people have a sphincter muscle in yeah. their forehead? The your the forehead you have like four sphincters in your head. Okay, that does not sound right. Eyeballs. Okay. Mouth. Sure. And your muscle I have up. never poked anything through my forehead. Sphincter just means it opens and is closes. How, is that how Zeus had Athena come out through his forehead sphincter? It just means that it opens and closes like a fo- like a camera lens. Okay, once again, my forehead does the, not have anything that opens like the lens of a camera. But the muscle is circular. That makes no sense. A doctor told me that. That doctor did not graduate from med school. They got their degree <laughs> through the mail. And that is not And a like my see fingers again. and toes were curled up the whole time when I was well, watching that it. Doctor? No, I was <laughs> watching the it movie. should have been when he was like holding the stethoscope to his own chest and concerned he couldn't hear anything. <laughs> that is not a good doctor. I was physically tensed through the whole film. It's an incredibly tense film. Yeah. It is hard to watch. Yes. It is 
if there was nothing supernatural in the movie, it was just about this mother concern for her ill child that she doesn't understand how to treat her well. That first two-thirds of the movie, before there's anything overtly yeah. metaphysical in it, it is a gut-wrenching experience. And, and I think in that, like, when I look back at my notes, um, I have all these questions about why are there so many jump cuts and, and things just happen and there's no explanation. Um, and I think that's a huge part of building that tension yeah. um, is because it just sort of speeds through the clock randomly stops and the cup scoots over on its own and mm. the, you know, and then there's the longer drawn out tense moments, which I actually like having now seen the whole movie, I take issue with because they mm. feel sort of cheap in the way of oh. the the horror movie cliche of the dumb blonde runs up the stairs instead of out the door. Um, there's a lot, okay, not a lot. There are two instances of people like, just going willy-nilly into dark spaces without even thinking about it. And they have reason to be concerned. In the very beginning, at the, the very beginning of the archaeological dig, they say, we found it. It's in many pieces. And Max von Sydow goes, and there's a hole, and it's like, it's a hole in the ground that's been buried forever. And he doesn't lean down and put a flashlight. He just, like, sticks his hand in there. And then... Does he get bitten by a snake? Nobody could have. But he... Didn't that's it's not fair to say like you're making the dumb decision. The girl runs up the stairs where the killer is clearly and chases you. She can't escape because she's going toward her own doom. He reaches in the hole. Us as the audience, we are torn in that moment. We're freaked out by it. But he's doing things that are very reasonable. Okay, well then, why does Chris just climb into the attic without a light? Like she once she gets up there or she brings a candle. Like it was 1973. They had flashlights. And she just, like, sticks her head into an attic. So that felt... I, there were more artful creations. She goes into the attic with a candle so we can watch the candle burn too brightly. Which is cheap. That's There There were more artful creations of suspension and tension throughout the movie. And it was better done. So in looking at those two moments in retrospect, it kind of feels like... The, okay, this is the closest it's, we're going to get to a jump scare. criticism in a way. Because you're right. that There's not a reality to that moment of her taking a candle up there instead of a flashlight. True. However, I think the movie is falling victim in this moment to its own successes. Because it is so strong in its documentary feel and its realism. That's probably true. That when there's something that's slightly not realistic that in another horror movie you'd be like, yeah, whatever, that's a horror movie. Yeah. You'd be fine with it. A strength of this movie is, so William Friedkin comes to the movie, he has a history of documentary, he won Best Director before this for French Connection, and that is a movie marked by its documentary feel. So I think this, a big part of the strength of this movie is how real it feels. So when it has those moments of not quite as realistic, you feel like it's slipping a bit, which I get, that's, that's a reasonable thing. I'm the first one to always say, Movies have to follow their own rules, their own logic. It's pretty tight with its logic. To, so to kind of say in that moment it's broken it, uh, yes. This is, this is a big moment. I've conceded something. <laughs> You're right. While we're on just other things that having name freaking, we need to talk about the guy who plays Father Karras, Jason Miller. Because I had no idea through the kind of lore of this movie how much it's really Father Karras' movie, the Jason yeah. Miller character going to it i love the performance in this movie yeah i think it's one of the best acted movies i've seen i, I don't know top hundred everybody's acted films everybody's amazing and then and then you you know fast forward 30 years and you realize that it's ellen burston in um rec room for a dream rec room for a yeah. dream and oh god which is so like that's a sad scary tense movie that i mm. i voluntarily watched and i'm glad that i did Sure. Um, because they made connections with those characters. And Ellen Burstyn was so amazing. And to see that character, the tweaked out yeah. speed grandma versus... Speed grandma. <laughs> That's not nice. She's the fastest grandma in the world. <laughs> speed grandma. Um, and then to see... Because I'll be very honest, I'm not sure I'm super familiar with a lot of Ellen Burstyn's work. Mm. Um, and, and so to see this woman, this career span over 30 years, yeah. and and 
just has not lost a step in yes. her amazingness. Like she, she was so good in this. The acting's amazing. Well, the, she was kind of briefly real famous, and then she was working. We kind of disappeared for a while. She got Best Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, the Scorsese movie. She's great in. Okay, why am I getting that look from you? Because I don't know what you're talking about. It's a movie by our greatest living director. Sure. Marty goddamn Scorsese. <laughs> I mean, it's I prob- one of his early movies. I've probably heard of it. Wow. All right. It's <laughs> one more on the list that we're going to have to take care of. You have to see every, every Martin Scorsese movie before you die. That's just a rule. Okay. <laughs> How many Martin Scorsese movies can you name right now? Let's just go through this real I mean, quick. right? Like, they all have gangsters in them. A lot of them do. Mobsters. Sure. That's not the name of any of them, but go on. I've seen a All lot. Right, let's just name a couple. Um, what's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> <laughs> I really liked that one. He's, a, he's made a lot of movies with Leonardo DiCaprio now. Oh. Uh-oh. And oh, Mad Damon and the Cranberry Juice. Okay, all right. Departed. Yeah. There we Departed, go. Departed, yeah, he made that That's one. That's one of the movies that I go, oh, I wish there was a way to kind of wipe your brain so you could see something for the first time again. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting thing. I, we should make that. The, so. the, the Departed is awesome. Yeah. I think it's one of his worst movies, but yeah. Oh. But he's great. I mean, one of his worst movies still would um, be great. Goodfellas? Goodfellas, yeah. yeah I like that one a yeah, lot. Sure. I like Ray Liotta and the helicopters. Sure. We'll come back to this another time. Okay. Uh, very. This is a this is a good game. How many Martin Scorsese movies can you name? America's number one game show. So, top three moments. Thank you. Exorcist. The sound direction and the the sound quality of the movie um, was spectacular yeah. um, across the board. The the opening with the very famous tubular bells. Mm-hmm. Um, the oh golly the backwards talking yeah really cool there's nothing scarier than that and that's been done so many times since then and i would guess probably a few times before but but my my guess would be this is what popularized it as a like that's what the devil sounds like there was this weird period in the 70s of playing with sound as judas priest did it right well i don't even mean as like music i mean as like a, a plot point in films yeah uh, Blowout is all about a sound recordist finding secrets in sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Conversation by Coppola is all about an espionage, kind of like, not spy exactly, someone who does like recording for private investigators, uh, them finding a secret in sound. Here you find the secret in soundtrack of what yeah. the demon is saying. That was a, a big thing in the 70s for some reason. So that, but then also the um, the way that they would isolate scary sounds Mm. so and and in very obvious ways like the mri sound being that was the only sound in the room which i from experience i think we all know it it does become the only sound in the room when you're Mm. when it's happening but in a movie you're used to there being other sounds and particularly now there's always seems to be a soundtrack you know Mm. um a score and so they're just being nothing but that MRI sound, and then it also feels like they ticked it up a couple notches oh, definitely. in the volume. And then there was moments where Father Karras is struggling with his faith, and then there's a jackhammer, and again, it's the only sound that's there. No. Um, that I'm very sensitive to sound emotionally, and that really had an effect on me, and it was pretty genius, and it is one of the Oscars that they won, yeah. was sound direction, sound design. Um, my second one... Um, would be the the cinematography. It was, it's an incredibly beautiful movie, and it's mm-hmm. very well shot. Um, Owen Roisman, crushing it once again. He got one. He <laughs> shot Fresh Connection too. He's great. Okay, well that guy did a great job. Um, other <laughs> good than, job, Owen. Oh, other than failing to notice the extra who showed up in three different shots, they re, well, they reused an extra. Small town. Um, and I noticed that on my own. I didn't look at the uh, IMDb goofs. Listings. Yeah, that. I'm proud of that. Thinks the lady doth protest too yeah. much. Um, <laughs> and then um, Reagan, Linda Blair's. She's so good. I mean, the acting in general, but like when you realize that this is a child, and um, you know, I made a joke on Facebook a few weeks ago after watching um, the new Philip K. Dick series, mm. and there's this 
little boy acting in it and I said you know between that and like the kids and stranger things how come I had to go grow up with um small wonder <laughs> those horrible kids like and not just the girl playing the robot who was awful but the boy was terrible too pretty sure you meant awesome but that's cool no um so I mean, just I think just to get that kind of a performance out of a out of a child is amazing, and particularly when it was clearly a very physically taxing performance. Oh. She's eight or nine years old, and she is masturbating with a crucifix. Like, well, and they they were real careful in making the movie that she didn't go through all those experiences. There yeah. was a tiny stunt lady named Eileen Dietz who did a lot of that stuff. What? Why did I get that look? I don't know. You say tiny stunt lady, and I think of the lady from Poltergeist. Sure. Okay, not quite that tiny. <laughs> okay, keep Fine. <laughs> yeah, tiny ladies. All goes back to the lady in Poltergeist for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, she sets outrageous and terrible things in it. Yeah. That are st- That's one thing about this movie, that it is still shocking. Yeah. There are things that are said and done in this film that are gut-wrenching still. And going to the MRI thing briefly in sound design, you and I have both had MRIs. Both times I've had an MRI, I have fallen asleep. It's this big, crazy, droning noise, and I just pass right out. So my associations with MRIs are not terrible. The MRI in this movie is horrifying beyond words. Because there's this kid squirming in agony and fear. And she's just had a wire poked up through her carotid into her brain. It's a horrifying film. All the medical stuff, the mysteries that science can't solve everything that's yeah. in the world and so they turn to faith which that, that, that for me is turned to faith yeah. for solutions and that for me so is, is maybe one of the scariest things is the idea that science doesn't have the answers i mean i'm fully yeah. aware that they don't i mean at the end of my fun pet scan cat scan ekg eeg sleep study mri thing Nobody had an answer for me why I was just suddenly fainting all the time. And they went, you have a fainting disorder. you were a goat. Yeah. You were a fainting goat, just Uh, keeling right over. And I said, "Uh, just a fainting disorder? There's no name for it? No, we don't really know why it happens. Cool. Can we call it Douglas Syndrome? Well, it's over now. Damn it. It was it was stress related, but but yeah, to not have answers when you're strugg- when you're suffering um, as a mother and um, also the little girl, it was terrible. And Linda Blair was amazing. So ultimately, I mean, I guess the big question is, did I like the movie? Did you, Amy, <laughs> like the movie? Are you glad I forced you to watch it? Okay, so those are two real different questions. They are. I feel um, good about both of them. I'm I am glad I watched it. It's it's a very good movie. It's a very mm-hmm. well made movie. Um, did I like it? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what like means. It hurt me, but I'm glad I saw it. Okay. Now, our <laughs> new regular feature question. I'm going to ask you. We're going to each ask the other about the movie. Would you recommend this movie to your mother? Specifically, your mother, Gail. <laughs> yes, because my mom and I are very different, and she loves scary movies, and um, was a little shocked and embarrassed that I hadn't seen it already. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would recommend it. All right, well. Go see it, Gail. There you go. <laughs> go on, Gail. Go watch it. Recommendations for Gail. <laughs> for one person. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, I think we know what that means then. It is time for you to talk about The Devil Wears Prada. Oh, Lord. Okay, here's my haiku summary. (laughs) I can't wait for this. (laughs) (laughs) That was been hyped up. Lame girl lacks style. Gets fancy job with chic bitch. Learns, (laughs) loves, screws, finds self. That's pretty good. Pretty accurate. Yeah, that's that's more well-crafted than what's on IMDb. DB for sure. Yeah, the IMDb description of this movie is rough, flawed to put it mildly. Yeah, I'm not gonna read all. Of it. I'm gonna read you a little bit of it though. In New York, the simple and naive, just graduated in journalism, Andrea Sachs is hired to work as the second assistant of the powerful and sophisticated Miranda Priestley, the ruthless and merciful executive of the Runway Fashion Magazine. Mm. That's one sentence. Merciless, not merciful. Did I say merciful? Yeah, it's real different. Those are different. <laughs> She's merciless. Apologies. 
Uh, Andrea dreams to become a journalist. Oh, God. This is... is it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Young woman goes to the big city, New York. Where the water makes everything taste better. Where the better. water <laughs> makes the bagels and pizza superior. And it makes the people arrogant and cruel. Um, yeah. Now I've lost this New York. Yeah. That's not... He's just... Don't listen. I actually really like New York. Yeah. And I'm a little sad I couldn't make it there. Because I understand if you make it there... Ugh. Anywhere. Keep going. So Andrea gets a job working for Runway, which is a clear uh, Vogue magazine, being run by this Miranda Priestley, who's a who's clearly supposed to be uh, Anna Winter. Anna Winter. I couldn't remember her first name. Um, she gets the job that many people, as I said, almost like a refrain in film, a million girls would kill to get this job. She scoffs at it and doesn't really bother to be very good at it for a while. She's slovenly and messy. Slovenly. She, I'm going by the, by the movie's own terms, not by my terms. Do they say that? No, I'm just by the attitude of the film. She learns to be stylish, learns to be good at her job. Her relationship with her boyfriend is tested. She triumphs and learns by herself and gets a job with a fledgling newspaper at the end. I, I do take real issue with this synopsis from IMDb because it says, In the end, Andrea learns that life is made of choices. I, I don't totally feel like that was conveyed. So... <laughs> I'm not sure that's a sentence that is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Life is made of choices. Thanks, IMDb. Yeah. Well done. Um, so this is what the movie's about. Now, the best thing in this movie is the first two minutes of it. The first two minutes of this movie is no joke excellence. I am smarmy and I am mean and I say mean stuff about stuff. <laughs> but the first two minutes of this are great. The first two, maybe three minutes, the opening montage is a series of young, beautiful, smart women getting ready for work. And they are getting up early. They are trying on outfits. They are doing their Lots hair and their makeup. Lots of fancy lingerie. Lots of, I, that sequence was good. Lots of fancy lingerie. They are eating very small amounts of food. Counting each almond. They're weighing their lunch. Yeah. They are kissing their significant others goodbye, who are usually still asleep in bed. Because the women have to get up so early, go and compete in this hyper-aggressive world. All of which is juxtaposed against, in the thing it calls her Andrea, she goes by Andy through the whole movie. Juxtaposed to Andrea throwing on a sweater, slipping on her shoes, getting her hair out of her face, and then eating a bagel with everything on it. Because <laughs> the bagels there are irresistible. So good. That sequence is great. It does such a, It does what movies can do. Using visuals and montage to say something interesting. And it shows what these women are struggling through and how hard they have to work and how unfair it is, how they are judged for their appearance, not just for their capabilities. It really um, clearly sets up the beauty standards. Sets up the beauty standards. It's great. It's really, really smart storytelling. And there's a kicky song. I don't remember what it is. Everyone I see, blah, 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 blah. It went like that. <laughs> is, Lisa, <laughs> is Lisa Kudrow singing this? No. Amazing. Um, I like that we're doing so many back references. So nothing else in the movie lives up to that moment. Everything else in the movie is played out, cliche, romantic comedy, girl in the big city, faces trials and tribulations while figuring out her own stuff. And I didn't think it was that great. I didn't think it was terrible. I didn't think it's a movie that should be wiped off the planet or anything, but it just wasn't, I don't get it. Why'd you make me watch this movie? Uh, <laughs> um, well, the the premise of the show is I can't believe you haven't seen and um, you're everyone start the countdown T minus till Rob makes fun of me. Um, but this movie made a lot of money. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> um, which I recognize does not mean that it's good. Like Armaged- Armageddon made a lot of money, Ooh. and I haven't like I can't even see I haven't seen it. I can't even go there. Oh, um, we might have to make you watch Armageddon <laughs> just for the awesome Aerosmith montage. Oh God! Um, so I, you know, and Titanic made a gajillion dollars, which. Yeah. Like, 70 alone came from my stepsister, who saw it in the theater seven times. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're 14 in 1997. Um, So, I recognize that making a lot of money doesn't mean good. Um, 
but also your separation from pop culture that is some sometimes your separation from pop culture mm-hmm. um i think whether it's self-imposed purposeful or not really good i i think it's important to still be aware it is impossible not to be aware of pop culture okay it's ubiquitous i mean because like i i I don't know that means i need to take part in all of it i know everything about the kardashian goings-ons even though i don't watch the show and i hate them (laughs) with a visceral hatred i cannot avoid them I was well aware of The Devil Wears Prada as a book and as a movie. Seeing it, it there, was not, there was not one surprising thing in this movie. If I had to sit down and make, if you said, here's the premise of the movie, and I said, and you said, write down all the major plot points, I could have done so. Yes, but... <laughs> well, okay. isn't that a problem? But, uh, but who was it that said there's only like seven stories to tell? But what matters then is how you tell them. Correct. This and is not told in particularly interesting fashion. Ha! Fashion pun. Um, I'm not sure that that's true because I think um, one of the things that I think the movie did really well was taking a trope, which is the dragon lady boss, mm-hmm. um, and showing her being vulnerable. And not just vulnerable, but but kowtowing to her husband. And, and not that that's a good thing, but... Just to show that she was multifaceted and she wasn't just this dragon lady, and 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 she did, she, she was multifaceted. She she was this horrible bitch. She was also incredibly intelligent, like that was obvious. Um, they showed her being very vulnerable with her husband, and when she announces her divorce, um, you also saw her be kind at the end when she mm. helps Andy out by writing a recommendation. Um, understanding that 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 would open every door in New York that Andy wanted to be open, and she didn't have to do that. Okay. And she also tried to guide Andy in her basically in, by saying, "Hey, spoiler alert! Andy goes to Paris." Um, that when <laughs> that's he, the spoiler. Yeah, that when someone he, goes to Paris. Well, because Emily Blunt's character spends sure. the whole time talking about Paris and then breaks her leg. And Andy takes... Someone wishes her good luck before a show. Right? Um, just, yeah. Um, and then Andy takes her spot, and essentially um, Miranda says, you haven't done anything different than I've done in the past. And, and I felt like that was kind of a warning. She says, you took advantage. You didn't have to go to Paris. And I felt like that was a warning, which shows some introspection and some retrospection of like maybe the person she's become isn't the person she wanted to be. I feel but like it's we too have to late. Back up a bunch. It's too far gone. So, first things first. I, in my actual real life, do not use gendered insults. Referring to uh, Miranda Priestley as a bitch is using very truly the parlance of this movie. The trope, yeah. Because that same is same here. I hate everyone, that word. I, I do as well. As, but as it's I a trope. Do. Dragon it's, lady, it's, powerful it's the, bitch. It's the language of this movie. Yeah. Pretty much everyone who talks about this character refers to her as a bitch. Um, or the dragon lady. Or the dragon lady. But often both in the same sentence. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting movie to be made about Anna Wintour. And about a Miranda Priestley-like character. This isn't it. She exists basically as a specter in the film. And this kind of ethereal other. And those brief glimpses into her humanity are so brief and are so glimpse-like. They're, I mean, they're blinking. You miss it. Stuff. <laughs> And they're window dressing. <laughs> and they're all old. Yeah. Oh, the fashion puns. There's one after another. Um, they're all in service of helping Andy. Andy's not interesting enough for me to care about her growth. See, and I would actually agree with you on, on that. Um, having watched it again and then and then kind of sitting with it, because it's been two weeks since we watched. And yeah, it's been a little bit. Um, I agree while I think Anne Hathaway is a great actress, um, I'm not sure that this was part was developed really well for her. And, and also, I think it was really busy. I think the movie was very busy. And yeah. so we didn't get a chance to know why we should care about her dreams to be a journalist. You is know? there any reason for this movie? Why does Andy have a boyfriend in this movie? 
to show how she changes fundamentally because the movie starts with them and they're they're both you know plucky upstarts and she's <laughs> trying to make it as yeah. a journalist and he's trying to make it as a chef and and they both experience success um you know he's up and coming she's up and coming but she's Does he experienced success in the movie at the at the end yeah, he gets a job in a different city, but you okay. the as a sous chef. I kind of viewed that as him like giving up on New York, not nope. as him getting new success. And there's another moment where they celebrate something for him. Okay. So, um, so I think that the the parallel trajectory of them experiencing success and him not changing and remembering who he is and mm. you know staying true, um, I, I, but then also falling prey to her feminine wiles and all the lingerie and fancy clothes she brings Yeah, home. it's pretty gross, some of that stuff. I agree, but... They're having real arguments, and she's like, look at this bra, and he says, oh, I have a penis. Yeah. Let's um, use that for this. But not unheard of. I mean... Well, and it gets to another... Well, so, okay. so let me finish my point about him. So he's there because he's he's the moral um control if you will like if in an ex- not controlling like no, I, I get what like you an mean. experiment, like experiment yeah. yeah i got you. so to show I how did high school biology i get it <laughs> to show how she changes he's there to be the backdrop of like look how you've changed and then it's made even more um pointed when her friends tell her how could you ditch him on his birthday La la la. So so he's there so as as her moral barometer in well, a way. That leads to a couple issues. One of which is the boyfriend character in general should understand it. My my understanding of the book I haven't read the book. I guess in the book the boyfriend character is a teacher and not a chef. They should have kept that in yeah. the movie. I agree that would have been a better story. Having worked in restaurants with chefs, they are cutthroat and they are competitive and they work extraordinary hours. And his frustration with her of You've changed. You're working too hard at this job. You're never around. An up-and-coming chef would understand that better than anybody. They've kept him a teacher. Teachers don't really do that. We have our jobs, and we do our jobs, and we work hard at them, but it's not, i got to screw over everybody else to get the schedule I want or something. Oh, no. That's just not how the job functions. No. So if they've kept him as a teacher, he would have been a better moral barometer for her. Yeah, and also... To, to act as though, as an upcoming chef, he has no understanding of right. the, the rat race or whatever. Yeah, is, is absurd. That was silly, yeah. That doesn't work at all. I agree. He was the most wholesome chef in New York. Right, which <laughs> in the post-Anthony Bourdain world... Yeah, doesn't you know, exist. He clearly is sleeping with the hostesses already. Like, what are we yeah. even talking about? And doing coke off of your dish before he sends it out to right. you. Right, which is why it has a little extra zang when you eat. Um, <laughs> That's why it tastes so good. Not the water. I just want to keep going back there. <laughs> I don't know why. I feel great when I leave that place. Let's go dancing. Um, the other problem with the movie is I feel like it has a really conflicted message regarding physical beauty. The more competent she becomes at her job, and the better she is, and the more she rises through the ranks, the more stylistically aggressive she is, the more fashionable she is, the better her hair is, the better her makeup is, the more beautiful she is. She uses those things to uh, seduce her boyfriend out of arguments. She flirts with someone that she has a professional connection with that she needs something from. But at the same time, the movie's saying, oh, fashion is purely surface and glib. This is all pathetic and terrible. People shouldn't be judged by their looks. But the movie congratulates her when she loses weight. The movie is so happy when she has her makeover moment. That I feel like it, it can't decide what it wants to say about this stuff. And I would agree with that, that, that there's conflicting messages. But I also think that, that mm, the difference in the message is maybe part of the message. Um, because there's... For me, one of the greatest moments in the movie, and and why I continue to enjoy this movie and think important is a very strong word, but I think it has something to say, is Mm -hmm. in the five-minute scene where they have a last-minute photo shoot to do and the redhead woman holds up the two belts that look very, very similar and says, which one? And Andy laughs and scoffs and says that they're the same. Mm -hmm. And then Miranda launches into her speech about... The, the blue of 
the sweater that Andy is wearing was not chosen by Andy. It was chosen for her. And she explains how couture Mm -hmm. drives everything else, right? Everything starts at couture and then bubbles down and becomes eventually what you pick up on the sales rack at Target. Um, And and those choice, like the movie is about choice, but it's choices that other people made for you to make you think that you've chosen to wear whatever it is you're wearing. Um, you know, so I, I have always found that to be a really interesting speech because I think it points to um, how the fashion industry works in a way that when I was younger, I never understood. I never understood couture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been friends for a very long time with somebody who created her own couture line mm-hmm. and has explained it to me about why a dress that she made that looked like a life preserver, like, makes sense. Um, and I still don't under, didn't understand it. Um, and until you saw the devil wears Prada. Well, and I think some maturity and going to see the Alexander McQueen. Sure. You know, um, exhibit in New York. Oh, I've heard it's great there. Yeah. Uh, the bagel I had outside of the Met was amazing. (laughs) Um, so and but yeah and and then i saw the devil wears prada and i and it made the point and so i think the point that it's making there um is that they understand is that there's a lot of people and a lot of perspective involved per- perspectives involved in this giant multi-billion dollar industry and yeah part of it has to do with talking about body shape and body size and part of it is pure crazy fantastical art when people wear bubble wrap walking down a runway like i think having differing messages is okay and the thing is and i cannot believe i'm about to say this but all this is gonna be good to congratulate her for her weight loss i think is okay in this sake in this instance because it's something she wanted but and she wasn't unhealthy she was beautiful you know she looked beautiful at both sizes right and she wasn't putting herself at risk and and let's be honest carbs are bad for you they have complex sugars nobody that's where we're looking at this from is nutritionally (laughs) she made good life choices no i were right to fat shame her so she would cut carbs off her diet for her long-term heart health but the characters who fat shamed her part of doing that was to show the hard edge to that industry and and to show but they can't be the hard edge of the industry and also be guardian angels of self-worth oh i'm i don't think i made that argument but well that they're they're encouraging her in this good thing congratulations this is this thing you wanted and you should cut those things out of your life anyway the characters don't do that but the movie's allowed to take a perspective the 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 outside omniscient narrator is allowed to take a perspective but it doesn't know what one it wants to say it is it is simultaneously congratulating and celebrating these people while trying to tell us we shouldn't cuz like the the blue the two belt speech is a very good piece of writing but message wise omniscient narrator wise it's a total mess because Miranda Priestly is a brilliant and powerful woman, and she also uses her brilliance to peddle things to the masses who are looking for a kind of satisfaction and validation that is ultimately meaningless. And it's what she profits from. The irony of all this being, I love fashion. And I don't. This is... The real twist in all this. Like, I am wearing a baggy t-shirt and ripped jeans right now, and you're in your... Well, I have on a tie in Oxford, and hopefully my new Spreza box is waiting for me at home with my new tie bar. And, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. And your pants that you paid to have shortened, because that's... I want to have them tailored up to be... Because that's the trend. the current style, that's right. Yeah. This movie is directed by David Frankel. Yeah. Would this movie, you think... I realize this is conjecture. We can't possibly prove anything. Are you going to ask, would it be a different movie if a woman directed it? Yes. Yeah, totally. I think it would be a far better film. And I think that Miranda Priestly and Emily Blunt's character would be even harsher. I think they'd be harsher, but maybe it wouldn't have the leering eye it does when looking at the female characters. That's fair to say. I think the... I won't say the male gaze, but the ogling gaze. Ogling. Yeah. The ogling. How do you say that word? Ogling? ogling? I go back and forth. I can't decide. That gaze. Because like, I think it's an ogling gaze, but to ogle someone. Okay. Is that right? 
I don't know. Gail, help us. The lecherous... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lechy gaze. Mm. Um, <laughs> lecherous gaze. Is, is palpable. Mm-hmm. I, I would... So, okay. So you made it clear what you don't like about it. So what are the top three things you do like about okay, it? Okay, my top three things I like. One, the opening montage is by a long shot the best thing in the movie. Mm-hmm. Second thing I like would be um, Stanley Tucci. The Tooch. The Tooch. Uh, the my Tooch man. is charming in everything. He elevates everything he's in and makes it better. In looking at the actors who were considered for this part, I can't, the actors I like, I can't imagine any of them in it. Yeah. He is clearly the best choice for this movie. He brings a warmth to the part. He's great as her kind of lieutenant at the magazine. He's excellent. And he sells me on the idea of fashion far more than the Miranda Priestley character did. Mm-hmm. Of him talking about being a young boy looking at these magazines and the glamour and the hope it brought him as a kid who didn't feel, feel like he fit in. And the, that was a far more moving speech for me. It was, and it's one of the things in the movie that I feel like supports my idea that the movie can be multi-perspective on, sure. on the fashion industry. Um, so that's my second thing. Okay. Third thing I'm going to go with, boy, the parties do look fun. I'd like to attend any of those parties. Those look like a good time. I want to go to Paris with Simon Baker, have him and his just eyebrows. whisk me away with his weirdly blonde eyebrows. Yeah. He's a handsome man. We didn't even get to the whole like love triangle in Paris. Her guilt over having yeah. a relationship with someone while single in a perfectly reasonable situation. It's a very unnecessary part of the story that, that pushes the plot and forward it's in a way. shaming the character thing. Yeah. She's broken up from her boyfriend. She's on a work trip in Paris with a handsome man who is her intellectual equal. And she gets shamed for sleeping with the guy. Who shamed her? She shames herself. She just spirals into this guilt of, oh, I shouldn't have done this and all the rest. She should have pursued a relationship with that dude. Well, but I, I think that is less shamey and more just pointing to she's in a place of transition and to confuse the matter makes it more confusing. All right. Um, Those are my three. Okay, so, very important. It does have some decent shots in it. Not many, but a couple. Very important question. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Would you recommend this to my mom? (laughs) I love this question. I would not recommend this movie to your mom. I would recommend the opening montage to your mom. But I would not recommend the movie on the whole to your mom. Gail, if you're listening, do not watch The Devil Wears Prada. (laughs) Take it from me. You'll not like it. You'll have problems with its attitude. I don't really know you, but I feel like I do know you. I feel like we've got a connection at this point. Gail, do not watch The Devil Wears Prada. All right. So moving forward. Yeah. Um, for next week, we had we struggled. We struggled a bit to come up with a theme here. Yeah. It's a little with bit of a stretch, the, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Because <laughs> um, I'm just going to stick with chick flicky kind of movies sure um and one of again one of the pitch perfect was one of the originals and um i think the very second one on the list the handwritten list was mean girls um which is probably one of my favorite movies um and there's a lot i can say about it but i'll save it for next week i'm actually looking forward to that movie good i mean the writing's good like it's and it's it's tina fey like it's sort of hard to argue with that I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Some of the young actresses in it grew up to be actresses I think are great. I'm, I'm on board. And then, I'm and, then and then some of them didn't. Some of them did not do as well. Yeah. Some real surprises in those trajectories. <laughs> uh, now, not the strongest thematic connection, but the she had mean girls. I'm going to have mean guys in my movie choice. Green Room, Jeremy Saulnier's thriller about Nazi punks. It's Yay. now our third <laughs> Nazi movie. <laughs> what? No, second. There was a Nazi in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Right. Carl gets accused of being a Nazi okay, in not. The Exorcist. I'm just He's, saying. All right. You keep throwing Nazis at me. I they they are the ultimate bad guys in film. That's true. There's something to be said about that. Of when, and this is for another episode. But you look at what have been the standard bad guys in movies through the years and what that says about our zeitgeist. It's oh, an yeah. interesting thing. Of Nazis, Russians, Russians, Arabs. Right. And now we're returning to Nazis, which is an interesting thing. And shouldn't be a question about whether they're bad or not. Right. But 
Well, and there's a video, I know you, neither you nor I are video game people, but no. there's a video game coming out called Far Cry 5. And the setting of this shooter thing where you run around and kill people is you are in the backwoods of a white supremacist town. Oh, my God. And so you go around killing American neo-Nazi white supremacists Ugh. and religious fanatics. Ugh. It is causing all kinds of turmoil. But it's an interesting question. Is that a legitimate subject for a video game? That's for another time. So, Amy is sticking with her, <laughs> it's a different her phrase, chick flick thing. I'm sticking with movies that I am certain will make Amy uncomfortable. Yeah, because it's going to happen. It's going to be great. Um, all right. So, wrapping up, uh, we want to invite people to submit movie suggestions. Because I will tell you, Rob's list is about twice as long as mine. So. Three times. Remind me of the movies that I loved. <laughs> um, the movies that you know Amy would love. Yeah, and probably do. Yeah. Um, so, like anything that played in the afternoon on like TNT in sure. the mid '90s. Unless it's Small Wonder. That was that was like regular TV. Sure. Um, so feel free to send us suggestions. Also, we would love to have challenges for how to write our synopses of each other's movies or the movies we're subjected to. Right. Um, so today, this week, we did a haiku. We're looking at limericks and uh, word word count word limits. count limits. So give us um, give us suggestions for that, and you can do that by emailing us at you haven't seen pod at gmail.com spell all of the words out and we are still on the hunt for a clever ending so insert clever ending here